to Exodus chapter 34. Again, if you could uh, turn to Exodus chapter 34, we'll be starting in verse 10 this morning. We're going to be starting in verse 10, but then we're going to skip down to verse 27 pretty quickly. If you would uh, stand for the reading of God's word this morning. In Exodus 34, verse 10, and he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. If you would skip down to verse 27, it says this. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the ten commandments. Dear God, our Father, Lord, uh, again, we come to this passion of, uh, portion of Scripture, Lord, uh, this portion, these chapters, Lord, where, where you reveal your character, where you reveal your name in such a marvelous way, Lord. God, I pray that as we continue to walk through these chapters, through the narrative of Exodus, Lord, that we learn more about you, that we learn more about your mediator Moses, Lord, and through that we learn more about your son and his role, Lord, as our intercessor, as our mediator, Lord. God, I pray that you're just with us this morning as we uh, get towards the end of this book, Lord, of Exodus. I thank you for the blessings uh, that we have been experiencing as we've walked through it, Lord. God, I pray that this morning we would be blessed, that you would be glorified, and Lord, as your word is proclaimed, this would be an act of worship. In your son's name, amen. You may be seated. Of course, we're going to be continuing uh, walking through the narrative of Exodus this morning, and, and we should get through the majority of Exodus uh, chapter 34. Remember, Exodus 32 through 34, these three chapters that we've been in the last few weeks are probably, I would say, the three most important chapters in the entire book of Exodus God is responding to Israel's sin, and through his response to Israel's sin, we see his character. He is revealing his name in a way that he hasn't so far through the book of Exodus. What it means that God is Yahweh, and all of this in response to Israel's failure, Israel's sin, Israel's breaking of the covenant. There's three points of the sermon this morning. God's response to Moses' request, God's reinstate, or God reinstates the covenant stipulations, and God renews the covenant. So we're going to be starting this morning with God's response to Moses' requests. And to understand our passage this morning, uh, this portion of scripture, we, we have to remember its context. We spent a lot of time on God's name last week, but let's remember where we're at because Exodus 34 verse 10 through 28, what we'll be covering today is all a response to a request that Moses makes in verse 9. 
So let's back up and remember where we are at. In Exodus 32, the chapter, uh, Moses came down or comes down the mountain after 40 days and 40 nights with God up on the mountain. He has two stone tablets, the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments written on them, words that God wrote himself on these two tablets. These tablets represented the covenant that God has just entered into with Israel, the covenant between Yahweh and Israel. Think of um, the Ten Commandments. I, I, I don't know if you've ever thought what was, is the purpose of the Ten Commandments. Think of them as somewhat like legal documents between Yahweh and Israel, almost like a marriage certificate. When Moses came down the mountain and he saw the Israelites worshiping a golden calf, not being faithful to the covenant, he threw the stone tablets to the ground and shattered them. This was obviously a visible analogy of what just had happened between Yahweh and Israel, between the covenant that was made between them. Right? The covenant between them was shattered. It was broken. Because Israel had been unfaithful, they broke the stipulations of the covenant. They broke the first and second commandment as they worshipped this golden calf. And from this point on in Exodus 32 through 34, from this point on after Moses confronts Aaron and the people, after Moses destroys this idol, the golden calf, from this point on, Moses is interceding on Israel's behalf as their covenant mediator. I hope these words are meaningful now as we walk, we continue to walk through this passage, intercession and mediator. Um, this means Exodus 32 through 34, in these three important chapters, is mostly about Moses' intercession or his mediation between God and Israel. He prays on Israel's behalf as he communicates to God. In Exodus 32, 1 through, or 11 through 13, he prays that God would not destroy Israel because of their sin. In Exodus 33, 12 through 13, he prays that God would go with him as the leader of the people to the promised land. In Exodus 33, 15 through 16, he prays that God's presence would be in the midst of the people as they go to the promised land. And in all of Moses' prayers, God responds favorably. Not only would God not destroy Israel, what they deserve, not only would God give Israel the promised land a blessing, grace, but God told Moses that his presence, his dwelling, would go with the people into the promised land. And God tells Moses in Exodus 33, verse 17, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you, Moses, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. God would be gracious to Israel because Moses had found favor in his sight. This is a amazing couple chapters and um, it's an amazing response to Moses' request, but this still wasn't good enough for Moses as we saw. As we saw last week, the main question that was on Moses' heart had not been answered. And the question was, how can a holy God, how can a holy God live in the midst of a sin-filled people? 
and not destroy them and not consume them with his holiness and justice. Because Moses was sure of one thing. He knew human nature. He knew the nature of the Israelites. He, he was sure of one thing. It was only a matter of time before Israel sinned again. So he asked God to show him his glory. He wanted to know God's ways. He wanted to know God's nature. He wanted to know God's name. What it means that God is Yahweh. So in Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses said, Please show me your glory. Moses knew the answer to this question was found in the nature of God himself. And once again, God answered Moses favorably. God put Moses in the cleft of a rock and passed before him and proclaimed his name. Look at Exodus 34, verse 6. Exodus 34, verse 6. The two most important verses in these three important chapters. Starting in verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed... The Lord, the Lord, or as we said last week, Yahweh, Yahweh, the God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third fourth generation. Verse 8, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. As I said last week, this is the clearest revelation that we have of God in the entire Old Testament. This proclamation that God makes to Moses of his name, what it means that, that God is Yahweh. This proclamation is foundational, foundational to how the Old Testament saints authors understood who God is and was. For Moses, it meant that he finally knew what it means that God is Yahweh. God is Yahweh. He finally understood God's nature. And with this understanding, he has one last request. Look at verse 9. And he, this is Moses, and he said, verse 9, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And there's the dilemma right there. How can God go in the midst of the people? How can a holy God live in the, the middle of a people, dwell with a people, if they are a stiff-necked people? Meaning they're sinful. Please let the Lord Go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. How is this going to work? Well, Moses knows now. He found the answer in God's name, in his nature. God is a God who forgives. So here's his final request. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. It's through God's merciful gracious and forgiving nature that this is going to work. And Moses finally requests again, verse 9, he says this, and, and he said, if, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, 
please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Now here's God's answer, verse 10. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. God's answer to Moses' request was to renew the covenant. Verses 10 through 27 is God's answer to verse 9, Moses' request. He's going to renew the covenant, the one that Israel has broken. He's going to, to do this because he is gracious and merciful, and he has forgiven the Israelites. Again, verse 10, and he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as I have not been such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. God is going to renew the covenant with Israel, and they're going to witness his awesome works. Now, before we move on to the next point, I want to point something out. And I hope by now you're starting to pay attention to the personal pronouns and the interaction between God and Moses. Because look at verse 9 again. This is Moses' request, and I want you to pay attention to the pronouns. He said, this is Moses, If now I, singular, I, Moses, have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, plural, for it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our, plural, iniquity, and our, again, plural, sin, and take us for your inheritance. Now, remember, Moses is asking for forgiveness of their sin, singular, the sin of worshiping the golden calf. So why does he include himself? He says, pardon our iniquity, that's singular, our sin. He wasn't there. He didn't worship a golden calf. Why is he including himself? Well, here's why. Moses continues to identify himself with the people. He continues to identify himself with the people. In other words, Moses, as Israel's mediator, associates himself with his people and includes himself among the transgressors. Moses identifies with the people of Israel. Their sin becomes his sin. Who does that point us to again? I mean, just over and over and over again in this passage, we see Jesus. In fact, I believe you just learn so much about the nature of, of Jesus in this passage. Once again, this points us straight to Jesus. Philip Ryken, theologian, writes this. This is one of the many ways that Moses shows us the structure of salvation and thus points us to the saving work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our mediator. Although he was not a sinner, he took our sin upon himself so that we could receive forgiveness from God. Therefore, the way for us to escape God's holy wrath and have our sins forgiven 
is to trust in Jesus Christ. In fact, Acts 10 verse 43 says this, Everyone who believes in him, that's Jesus, everyone that believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Remember Exodus thirty-three seventeen. it says this, this very thing, this is God talking to Moses, this very thing that, that you have spoken, I will do for you, Moses, have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses, as mediator, as intercessor, points us to Jesus. Now, look at God's response. This is God's response in verse 10 to Moses' request. Again, pay attention to the personal pronouns, verse 10. And he said... Behold, this is God talking. Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. Do you see what God called Israel? He's still calling Israel your people, Moses. Your people. Referring to Moses again. Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people people. Now, if you remember, God started referring to Israel as Moses' people in Exodus 32 in response to Israel's sin, showing that there was a separation between Yahweh and Israel. But unlike before, this is not negative. God is using this in a positive way. He says, behold, all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth in all the earth or in any nation. And I think again this is very intentional God's words and Moses' words and their interaction together and their mediation and the intercession have been so intentional. So I think this is intentional. In fact, John McKay writes this, another theologian, the Lord declares that through the person of Moses, the covenant mediator he is re-entering into a covenant relationship with Israel. It's through Moses that this covenant will be renewed. Again, Exodus thirty-three seventeen, which I think is a key verse, says, This very thing you have spoken, I will do for you, singular Moses, for you, Moses, have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. In other words, Moses' favor becomes Israel's favor. Again, this points us to Christ. Moses is a type of Christ. And it's especially true in these three chapters. I mean, every week I just see this over and over and over again as we slowly walk through these three chapters. Where he mediates and intercedes on Israel's behalf, or as Psalm 106 puts it, Moses, God's chosen one stood in the breach before him to turn away God's wrath from destroying the people. Salvation for Israel was found in Moses, their covenant mediator, just like our salvation is found in Christ. And in the new covenant, established in his blood, he is our covenant mediator. Again, this is God's response to Moses' request. First point of the sermon this morning. The second point, God reinstates the covenant stipulations. God reinstates the covenant stipulations. So let's get back into the narrative. I want you to think about this for a second. If God is going to renew the covenant, right, that's
that's his response to Moses as Moses asks for forgiveness. He says, I will make a covenant with Israel. If he's going to renew the covenant, then it should be pretty obvious that all the laws and the stipulations of the covenant are going to be renewed as well. And that's exactly what God does in Exodus 34, 11 through 26. Although he doesn't quote all the laws in this passage, right? all the laws that are found in the Ten Commandments or the laws found in the Book of the Covenant, God quotes from every major section of them. And in so doing, he's reinstating the entire law. So think of Exodus 34, verse 11 through 26 as a summary of the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant with the purpose of reinstating the entire law. So it's a summary to, to reinstate the entire law. So let's just walk through these verses. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on each one of these laws because I've already covered them when we walk through the Ten Commandments and walk through the Book of the Covenant. But look at verse 11. It says this, again, Exodus 34, verse 11. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. As we've seen, this is referring to the promised land. God's going to give Israel the promised land. He's going to drive out the people, the pagan people that are there uh, before and as they enter into the promised land. Verse 12, take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it becomes a snare in your midst. In other words, don't make any covenants with this people that I'm going to drive out. Verse 13, you shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. These are all their religious artifacts, shrines, and places of worship. So the Israelites are to come into the land and to absolutely destroy all these religious uh, paraphernalia, artifacts, shrines. Destroy them. And here's why, verse 14. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now, jealous is God's way of explaining not only his love for the Israelites, but his zeal for his glory. This is not a sinful type of jealousy. He has a zeal for his glory, which is what is best for the Israelites. But more importantly, I think verse 14, it's, it's important to see this as a, a clear reference to the first and second commandment. This is the second commandment found in Exodus 20, verse 4. This is, of course, we know this, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Let me keep reading. Or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I... The Lord your God am a jealous God. Again, verse 14 is referring to the second commandment here. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Verse 15. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited you eat of his sacrifice and you take of their daughters for your sons and their 
daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. In other words, God is commanding Israel through Moses to be separate from the pagan nations. Be separate from the pagan nations. Now, again, I want to remind us what is going on here. This is a summary of the entire law. The entire law. Obviously, the first and second commandments are in focus here. But why? Why does God repeat certain commands and not others? Why these particular commands? I think it's an important question, and there's some debate on this. Everyone agrees that this is a summary of the entire law, reinstating the entire law. But why certain commands does God pick out of the law? Well, I think the answer is found in verse 17. Verse 17 says this, You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. What's that referring to? The golden calf. Israel's sin of idolatry. Listen, I believe God is picking out laws that particularly apply to Israel's sin of worshiping a golden calf. Laws that apply to idolatry. These laws that that God's highlighting, in other words, will help Israel stay away from idolatry and worship God alone. Let me be clear. Again, God is reinstating the entire law, but he's summarizing it in a particular way. He's cherry-picking the laws that will help Israel stay away from idolatry. Now, that's pretty amazing when you think about it. It's amazing because Exodus 34, verses 12 through 17, what I just read, is mostly about relationships. Israel is not to have any type of partnership with pagan nations within the promised land. They are to be separate from them. In other words, God is warning that partnership with pagans will lead to paganism, idolatry, false worship. Again, let me just read verse 15. It says this, Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You see it? Israel was not to make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. They were to be separate from the pagans of the land. Now, I think, and maybe... This is kind of your thinking right now. I, I think most people, most Christians, see this as a, an Old Testament thing. In the Old Testament, Israel was to be completely separate from the nations. But in the New Testament, we are to engage the world, the nations. We are to be, I hear this word often within Christianity, and it's not a bad word, but depending on what you mean by it, we, we are to be winsome. For the cause of Christ or for evangelism. Now, I want to be clear. The truths behind these laws apply today. 
even though we are no longer under the law, the particular laws themselves, the principles behind these laws transcend both testaments. And that's because, listen, this is so important, relationships are powerful. They're powerful. And they influence us more than I think we realize. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15.33 says this, Do not be deceived. Why would Paul say that? This is something that we would be deceived in, right? He's warning us. This is something that's deceptive. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. That's not just a, a, a child's proverb. Back, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 14. Verse 14 says this. Familiar verse. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now it's a familiar verse, I think, because most of us see this verse applied to marriage, and we probably have used it at at some level to apply to marriage, maybe for our kids or grandkids or even in our own lives. But marriage isn't the context of this verse. Marriage applies, don't get me wrong, but it's not just about marriage. In its context, it's way more broad than just marriage. Again, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14 says this, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? temple of God with idols. You know, what's going on here is uh, Paul is using an Old Testament principle and he's applying it to the new, to the new covenant, to us. We are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, what's that mean? Because to be unequally yoked with unbelievers is admittedly somewhat vague. In fact, The analogy is of two animals being yoked together, uh, two animals that are different in nature, meaning they're they're not equal, right? Like like yoking an ox with a donkey. That's just not going to work. You're going to end up going in a circle because one pulls way stronger than the other, and you're just going to frustrate both. You should only yoke an ox with an ox and a donkey with a donkey. So what does it mean to be unequally yoked with unbelievers? To be honest, I think this is one of the hardest commands in Scripture to apply because it takes so much wisdom to apply this command. You can't just draw a black and white line. I think it's one of the reasons we apply it to marriage because that's a place you can draw a black and white line, and everywhere else it's really gray. It's hard to apply. It takes a lot of wisdom. But generally speaking, it means something like this. We are... We are not to form any relationship, whether temporary or permanent, with unbelievers that would lead to a compromise 
of our Christian convictions or jeopardize the consistency of our Christian witness. We are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. John MacArthur puts it this way, the church must confront the world to fulfill the great commission given to us by our Lord. Yet, we are not we must not compromise with false religions to do so. Let me just read that again because I think it's so profound and there's a lot of wisdom in this. We must confront the world to fulfill the great commission given to us by our Lord. Yet, we must not compromise with false religions to do so. To disobey God's explicit command to separate from unbelievers is foolish, blasphemous, ungrateful, and forfeits God's blessings. I spend a lot of time here because just as a pastor and something that I, I see for our church, but the larger evangelical conservative church as a whole, I feel like this is a danger for the church today. As we get backed into a corner, which we are, as we get backed into a corner politically, as Christians in America, we are going to find ourselves shoulder to shoulder with some strange friends. People we agree with politically, but aren't Christians. Meaning, they do not hold to the same shared Christian convictions or beliefs. We're finding ourselves getting backed into corners with Jews, with Catholics, with Mormons, with atheists outright blaspheming the name of the Lord that we agree with politically. We are Christians first, politically minded Americans second. Therefore, make sure you are not unequally yoked with unbelievers. Because relationships are powerful. They're powerful. They can destroy our Christian witness. They can influence our Christian convictions. Now turn back to Exodus 34, verse 18. Exodus 34, verse 18. Again, in verses... 11 through 17 in this chapter, God gives a number of negative commands. Negative commands meaning don't do this. Laws telling Israel what not to do. Laws that will help Israel stay away from idolatry. Well, that switches in Exodus 34, 18 through 24. God tells Israel what to do. He starts giving Israel positive commands. These are laws to help Israel stay away from idolatry, yet this time, they're positive laws. What to do? Don't do this. Do this. Put off, put on. We see this throughout Scripture often. Right? Look at verse 18. You shall, this is a positive command, you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. And for the month of Abib, you came out of uh, from Egypt. All that open 
the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Again, we've spent time in these laws. They're repeating laws that we've already covered in Exodus. These laws and festivals talked about in these few verses I've just read uh, are connected to the historical Passover, the Passover that happened in Egypt, the tenth plague that happened in Egypt and God saving the Israelites. Look at verse 21. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. This is the fourth commandment. Israel was to keep the Sabbath. They were to keep the Sabbath weekly. Verse 22. You shall observe the feasts of weeks, the first fruit of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Israel was to observe these festivals. And look what it says about these festivals. Uh, Verse 23. Three times a year in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel, for I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one, should, no one should covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. Again, we covered these three festivals and they perfectly point forward to Jesus and and Pentecost and all these things, but, but three times a year, God's commanding the Israelites He's commanding them to travel, to travel eventually to Jerusalem. These three celebrations are pilgrim festivals, pilgrim celebrations. The Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Ingathering. Three different festivals where they would travel to celebrate these festivals. Listen, what is God commanding here? In verses 18 through 24, he's commanding corporate worship. He's commanding corporate worship. Listen, Exodus 34, 11 through 17, God commands Israel to be separate, to separate themselves from the pagan nations. Exodus 34, 18 through 24, God commands Israel to come together as a people, as a nation, for corporate worship. In two ways, weekly on the Sabbath, and three times a year, they were to travel for three separate festivals to come together to worship and celebrate together, to remember what God has done, to anticipate the blessings that they're going to receive. And remember, the purpose of these laws was to help keep Israel away from sin, to help keep Israel away from idolatry simply by doing two things. Be careful to keep a separation between you and the pagan nations and invest in corporate worship. Invest in their relationships with each other, with brothers. Listen, the laws found in Exodus 34, 11 through 24 are no longer binding to us as New Testament believers. But, the principles behind these laws still apply today. Again, 
second Corinthians six fourteen says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. What accord has Christ with Belial or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are not to be yoked with unbelievers. It's like two animals with completely different natures. Christians and non-Christians have two completely different natures and are not to be yoked together. Which leads to a question, who are we to be yoked with? Believers. Hebrews 10, verse 24, and let us consider, in other words, put effort into this. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Just so you know, that was written 2,000 years ago. I think the day's a little nearer. <laughs> we are called to invest time and not just time, energy. Sacrifice one another. Time and energy, considering how to stir up one another to love and good works, to encourage one another. Let me just be clear, because I don't want you to mishear me. We should have friends and friendships outside of the church. With unbelievers, even. But those friendships are for the purpose of sharing the gospel. The friendships within the church is where we are called to find encouragement, and direction, and accountability. We are called to invest. We are commanded to invest time and energy and effort toward our relationships within the church. Time and energy and coming together for corporate worship and, and not just Sunday mornings coming together for corporate worship, but time and energy to, to really get a part of each other's life. That's why we push small groups so much, because where else are you going to do that? I mean, think of the Old Testament for a second here. How much time, energy, and money was used to travel three times a year, three times a year, for the pilgrim festivals. It was dangerous to travel back then. Huge investment. God commanded Israel to sacrifice a lot for corporate worship. Again, Exodus 34, 11 through 17, God commands Israel to separate themselves from the pagan nations. Exodus 34, 18 through 24, God commands Israel to come together to come together for corporate worship, to, to be together in relationships with fellow brothers, people that are the same nature. Look at verse 25. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with any leaven, or let the sacrifice of the feast of Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat its mother's milk. Again, we've covered all these laws before, if you're interested why they were not to boil a young
young goat and its mother's milk, you can go back to that sermon I did. Um, it's just paganism. They were not to mix paganism with corporate worship. Again, verses 11 through 24, God is reinstating the laws and stipulations of the covenant, but he's focusing on the laws that will keep Israel from idolatry, the sin of idolatry. And this brings me to the last point this morning, the covenant renewed. Again, Moses asked God to forgive Israel of their sins. God answers favorably by renewing the covenant between Yahweh and Israel. Look at verse 27. The Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate nor drank water, obviously supernaturally was sustained during this time. You cannot not drink water for 40 days. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. In other words, the covenant has been reinstated. The documents have been remade. The two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments on them. And Moses will once again come down the mountain after 40 days and 40 nights, just like he did He will come down the mountain to present the tablets to the people. And we'll see that next week as we continue in the narrative of the story of Exodus. But for today, three points of the sermon. God responds to Moses' request to forgive Israel. He responds by promising a renewed covenant. God reinstates the covenant stipulations, the laws and and stipulations from the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant, he summarizes it but focuses on idolatry and what will keep Israel away from idolatry. And finally, God renews the covenant itself by having Moses make two new tablets, which Moses again will come down the mountain with and present to the people, as we'll see next week. Let me just end the sermon today by saying this Exodus 32 through 34 are amazing chapters. If anything, you can tell I'm excited about them. I mean, they just clearly display the character of God. In our passage this morning, we see God's faithfulness to Israel despite their sin. And this faithfulness really sets a pattern for the generations to come. The thousands of generations talked about in his name, the generations to come, right? Because Israel will consistently fall into idolatry. But Yahweh will just as consistently remain faithful to the covenant he made with them. Often punishing them, but also always calling them back to a relationship with him. Willing to forgive. God's relationship with Israel is the full realization of his name. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgression and sins. God is truly compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, a God faithful to his promises and willing.
thank you for just clearly proclaiming your name, Lord. You have no obligations to us. You are not obligated to reveal yourself to us. It's out of your gracious and merciful nature, Lord, that we know who you are. We know what it means that you are Yahweh. God, and that's good news. Because you are a God that's gracious and merciful, slow to anger. A God that is faithful to his promises and covenants, Lord. A God that is willing to forgive. Yet a God that will right all wrongs in this world. A God that is just. God, we thank you for who you are and we glorify you, Lord, in your son's precious name.